You're listening to The Jay Barker Show on Tide 100.9 in Tuscaloosa. Welcome to Big Noon Sports, featuring Lars Anderson, New York Times bestselling author of 12 books and a 20-year veteran of Sports Illustrated, and Matt Coulter, a former Alabama Broadcaster of the Year and longtime media personality. Here's Lars and Matt. Welcome in to Big Noon Sports, brought to you by Haley Sansing of Union Home Mortgage. How's everybody doing today? Pretty slow day in the world of sports. Not a ton going on. I would say that uh, July is typically the slowest month, but in a lot of ways, it's the best month because every team in college football is 0-0. And, uh, and this is sort of the, the season of dreaming, the time of dreaming for fans all across the country because anything is possible. And, uh, in, in, in the NFL too, I know that, that camps are going to be opening by the end of the month. And so for those of us who love the NFL, who love college football, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, what a tumultuous offseason this has been in college football, uh, just with uh, the rapidly evolving landscape of uh, NIL, of the transfer portal, of conference realignment, of playoff expansion. There is so much going on. And I, I thought that Nick Saban gave a really interesting interview the other day to uh, Joel Klatt where he kept talking about, uh, he kept using the word adapting, adaptability. Whoever adapts the best is going to be the best. And this really has been a hallmark of, uh, of Nick Saban and his tenure at Alabama. I mean, I think he, it's what he does best and that is adapting to the evolving changes and being ahead of the changes as much as possible in the college game. Uh, we saw that with the RPOs and, uh, and, and how, um, you know, I, I've written about this extensively. I know that the kick six, that actual play is, uh, is, you know, has gone down in college football history as perhaps the, the, the top play or one of them. Not a play that people in Tuscaloosa and across the state of Alabama necessarily want to remember. But it was in that game against Auburn in the Iron Bowl, it was a play before the kick six, which really sort of set Nick Saban off. And that was when uh, Auburn quarterback Nick Marshall sort of drifted out to his left. And it was a, a run pass option. And and he ended up throwing the ball to a wide receiver for a long touchdown. I think like 40 yards or something. And on that play, uh, Auburn clearly had multiple men beyond the, the imaginary line of going beyond the line of scrimmage. And it should have been called back. But it wasn't because refs weren't calling illegal men down the field, illegal alignment down the field. Uh, with the RPOs as they were being run. 
And that's why Saban came out right after the game and said, is this the way we're going to play college football? And if it is, okay. And so what did he do? He went and got Lane Kiffin. That is called adapting. And he, he, uh, he had, he gave full reins of the offense to Lane and fully revolutionized his offense. And then what did he do after Ohio State drubbed Alabama in the uh, first round of the playoffs back in, what was it, 2013, 2014? Um, I think when Ezekiel Elliott ran for like 220. Um, Nick Saban in that offseason, he invited Tom Herman, who was the offensive coordinator at, at, um, at Ohio State, who had just recently taken a job at Houston, he invited he invited Herman to Tuscaloosa, and and Tom came, and they sat in Nick's office, and Nick just picked his brain for about forty five minutes to an hour, trying to figure out how can Alabama stop offenses like Ohio State's, where they just they spread they spread Alabama out. And, uh, and, and just created running lanes for Ezekiel Elliott and others. And, and Cardell Jones had the game of his life, parlayed that, uh, into becoming a first round draft pick where he didn't work out in the NFL. But those two examples. And so what does Nick Saban do? He gets, he changes the prototype of what he wants at each position on the defensive side of the ball. You know, Nick had spent years and he first developed this with Bill Belichick when they were assistants at Cleveland. The ideal prototype, uh, uh, height, weight, uh, 40 speed, uh, you know, like ankle dexterity, knee dexterity, like just a million different measurements. And he wanted each player to have as many of those physical qualities as possible to meet his prototype. Well, he kind of ripped that up after that Ohio State defeat and, uh, and after his discussion with Tom Herman. And suddenly Alabama becomes a smaller, faster defense. Uh, and you, uh, gone were the guys like uh, Dante Hightower, right? These big, huge uh, linebackers who uh, struggled in coverage. And then in come guys like C.J. Mosley, faster, a uh, little smaller, able to do uh, more in coverage and it just changed changed the entire nature of his defense so we've seen it with Nick Saban it's his hallmark quality is adaptation adaptation so how is Nick Saban going to adapt this year right where he's coming into a season where for the first time in what seems like a very long time, he doesn't have a set starter at quarterback. He doesn't have a certainly uh, a guy who we could go ahead and pencil in as a first round draft pick, right? There's no, uh, there's no Mac Jones. There's no Tua. There's no Jalen. And I know Jalen was a second round pick. There's no Bryce Young. Although Jalen is now the highest paid quarterback, highest paid player in the NFL. 
I think it's 163 million guaranteed. Um, but uh, that will soon be eclipsed by uh, the Chargers quarterback, Justin Herbert, and then that will be eclipsed by the Bengals quarterback, Joe Burrow. Um, but so how, how is Alabama going to adapt this year? And I think we are really going to find out about that in game two. And that is against Texas. And to me, this is the biggest early season game in all of college football. It may end up being, when we look back on the 2023 season, one of the three most important games of the entire season, playoffs included. Because I think this is going to be a a tone setter for either team. And uh, it's interesting. I didn't realize this, but Texas hasn't played in Tuscaloosa in 121 years. 121 years. And I love, like, just close your eyes and imagine what this was like. The only time Texas came to Alabama, to Tuscaloosa, was in 1902. 1902. And Bryant-Denny Stadium had not yet been built, so there wasn't a football stadium. And Alabama played its home games in the area that's now known as the Quad, in the in the center of campus. And just uh, I, I, this is why I love writing nonfiction narrative historical books uh, because I love to transport myself back in time and really imagine what it was like just standing on the sidelines. What was it What was it like being in the huddle? Uh, what did it sound like when the players hit each other? How fast were they? How violent was the game? You know, just seven years after this, in 1907, President Roosevelt thought about banning the game of football because it was so violent and because there had been so many deaths due to uh, the violent uh, head-on collisions that were causing neck, so many neck injuries. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was almost like uh, it was a totally different game back then, and many rules were implemented to make sure that it just wasn't two teams running at each other at full speed on every single play where there was just multiple collisions. But anyway, uh, Texas ended up winning that game back in 1902 on the quad, 10-0. to And so now, for the first time since then, Texas is going to be coming to town week two of the season. And uh, I, I think there's really just no question that it's uh, it's the biggest, I think by far, it's the biggest non-conference game at Bryant-Denny Stadium of the Nick Saban era. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Uh, you always got to, whenever you make a big sweeping statement like that, you kind of got to double check yourself to make sure you're not taking a big bite out of the apple of hyperbole. But uh, I don't think we are here. And... Um, It'll be in, you know, the next year, obviously, in 2024, this won't be considered a non-conference game. This will be considered an SEC game. 
And we know that Alabama, that the Tuscaloosa hotels, the restaurants are already preparing for it. The fans have been waiting for it. And now uh, here we are. It's uh, it's rapidly approaching, and it's a game that we are going to keep talking about. And in fact, we're going to be talking about it after this next break with AL.com's Mike Rodak, who is going to join the show. Excuse me, Mike Rodak just moved from AL.com. Strike that. <laughs> Mike Rodak of 24-7 Sports. He's going to be joining us next. You're listening to Big Noon Sports. I'm Lars Anderson. My running partner, Matt Coulter, has the day off. He'll be back tomorrow on Friday. Hope everybody's doing great on this Thursday afternoon in beautiful Alabama. We'll be right back. From T-Town to the Plains, this is Alabama's most in-depth analysis on the SEC. This is Big Noon Sports. Securing the best mortgage possible requires a lender who has knowledge, is trustworthy, and treats customers like family. And no one is better at all of this than the mortgage miracle worker, Haley Sansing. Based right here in Tuscaloosa, Haley Sansing has spent decades working in the mortgage industry. With Haley, it's personal, holding your hand from contract to close. With Haley, it's about one thing, you. Call Haley on her cell, yes, her cell, 205-792-1813. That's 205-792-1813. Let Haley help you. NLMS number 230376. Tide 100.9, Tuscaloosa weather. A mix of sun and clouds this afternoon. Scattered showers and storms around through the evening hours. The high today, 92. Tonight's low, 73. For tomorrow morning, sunshine. Scattered showers and storms forming Again by afternoon, the high 91. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 89 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Welcome back in to Big Noon Sports. Um, Lars Anderson, Matt Coulter has the day off. Now joined by Mike Rodak, Alabama staff writer for Bama 24-7, which is part of the 24-7 Sports and CBS Sports. And before this, Mike did a great job of covering Alabama for AL.com. And then for ESPN, he goes all the way back covering the Bills and the Patriots. Hey, you know, uh, Mike, before we get into uh, all things Alabama, what was it like covering the Bills? And uh, and it, it seems that uh, I'm sure you still follow the Bills, that Josh Allen is having a little beef with the media for, uh, you know, it's always the media's fault for, for blowing uh, a dust up between uh, two players uh, out of proportion, right? And uh, he said that it was the it was a media created um, uh, some animosity between himself and Stefan Diggs. Uh, just, I, I'm just wondering your thoughts on, on that and also just what it was like covering the Bills and what the access was like compared to covering Alabama. Yeah, all good questions. I, I, first off, I think 
whenever something goes wrong, blame the media. That's usually the uh, the standard go to. But in terms of you know what it was like covering the Bills, it I mean it was a much different time. I started ten years ago this summer, 2013, and you know their stadium at the time was crumbling, and uh, they had an owner Ralph Wilson who created the team, but at that point was in his 90s and everything had just kind of deteriorated and obviously the the Super Bowl teams of the 90s with Jim Kelly were gone and um, the team was pretty run down. They were in the middle of a a big playoff drought and uh, they were losing to the Patriots every year in the AFC East and nobody really cared about them. Um, And they, the year I got there was when they drafted EJ Manuel, you know, from Florida State in the first round, 16th overall. And that was a complete (laughs) bust. And Doug Marone was their coach who, you know, eventually became Alabama's offensive line coach. And, things just got really messy Rex Ryan came in and that was supposed to be this big you know splashy hire and that completely flopped and then right around the time you know before I left um, was when they got Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean and then they drafted Josh Allen I was there for Josh Allen's rookie year and you can kind of tell things were turning around they had a new ownership group in Uh, they were fixing up the stadium fixing up the practice facility trying to get that team back it wasn't, you know, JV anymore for in terms of the NFL. And they've certainly done that. Um, but they've also, I think, fallen short a little bit of, of the capability of, of their teams the last couple of years. And everybody's noticing them now because they're winning a lot of games and they're you know, getting deep into the playoffs. But, uh, you know, they've lost, you know, some games that they, they probably should have won. And, uh, yeah, like you said, here we are with Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs. They're two highest paid players, the two best players getting into a, uh, you know, it's been a public thing because it goes back to the playoff game they played last year when Diggs was yelling at Josh Allen on the sideline and, you know, he doesn't show up for some of the practices this offseason and Sean McDermott says he's very concerned. So, I mean, the media is just reporting what's happened. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think players like to play the out-of-context card or uh, blown out of proportion card. And, I mean, ultimately, they had a chance to say different things and, and they didn't yeah um you know it, it didn't help that they got spanked at home in the playoffs in a snowstorm <laughs> and and i i forget which player it was but said that uh, that uh that buffalo wasn't built to play in the snow which was just sort of a head scratching statement but um you also covered the patriots and I've been up to one Patriot place several times for uh, doing different stories over the years. Never gotten to know Bill Belichick very well. Um, what is the difference between covering Bill Belichick and Nick Saban? And I, I would put you in a very, very small group amount of people who have covered both coaches on a day, day in and day out basis. Yeah, yeah, there's, it's a small group. I know Ian Rappaport is another one. Um, you know, he covered Saban for AL.com early on, and then he actually went up to Boston. I was there with him when he was at the Boston Herald. So, um, beyond that, I can't think of anybody else. There's been some coaches, obviously. Brian Dayball, uh, is one of them, but, um, you know, it's, it's a question I get a lot. There's, there's certainly differences, you know, obviously differences in, in their personalities and how they operate. There's also differences in, in covering them. Um, and I, I guess I forgot the, in, as part of your last question, you know, the differences in access too, uh, and what NFL teams can control versus what college teams can control is, is different. Um, there's a stronger writers association at the pro level that negotiates, 
a lot of access with the NFL. There's, you know, there's a single governing body, the NFL, that controls uh, what all 32 teams have to do. In college, it's different. I mean, the SEC doesn't really have media roles. The NCAA doesn't have media roles. It's every school for themselves, unless it's a bowl game. Um, you know, it's college football in general. is just more decentralized. And so that gives Nick Saban some more power, if you will, um, to do things such as not allow us to talk to freshmen, which he doesn't, not allow us to talk to assistant coaches, which he doesn't, uh, only talking to coordinators once a year. Uh, at the NFL level, Bill Belichick, I'm sure, would love for all those things to be true for himself, but rookies have to talk. Every single player has to talk every single week to the media. Uh, otherwise, they risk getting fined. And assistant coaches have to talk once a month. Coordinators have to talk once a week. So all those rules are in place, and there's really no way for, for Bill Belichick to get around those. Um, so that's that's the main difference. But, I mean, I think if, if they had their ways, they would run things uh, as close to uh, each other as they could. Yeah, I, I remember when I was up there, uh, I think the, just the last time, uh, Dante Hightower was on the team still, and I, I think he still is, but um, I knew Dante from his time in uh, Tuscaloosa and immediately like sought him out. You know, he remembered me and I really, I needed to talk to Tom Brady and Brady's just sitting there right in front of his locker and I noticed that like no reporters were going up to him. And so I had, uh, uh, Hightower was nice enough to introduce me to Tom. And then I got, you know, a few minutes with Tom. And then all of a sudden, boom, the, the scrum is on top of Tom. Uh, <laughs> you know, that game. Uh, did you find Brady approachable? And, and was it, what was it like working with Tom? Uh, so that would have been 2010 through 2012 was when I covered him. And at that point, he had already won three Super Bowls. He was kind of in the middle of his career, but he was by then a, a huge star. Um, and so you, and that was kind of the beginning, I think, when you can sense just in general, like he was kind of becoming his own entity within the team, um, which I think really manifested itself a few years later, you know, with his personal trainer becoming an issue for Bill Belichick and uh, that started a lot of the friction that ultimately led to Brady leaving. But there was a time, I think, early on in his career that he was just another guy, and he was very approachable, I'm sure, by the media and just kind of Tom. Uh, I think by the time I got there, that had sort of waned away. He was the star player. He was um, the guy that, you know, would talk once a week. Honestly, I, I was pretty rarely involved with that because I was working with Mike Reese at ESPN and he yeah. would take the lead on talking to Brady so I would go elsewhere in the locker room. And Mike was so um, nice I, to me. Mike was so nice to me, yeah. by the way. Like, you know, when you parachute in somewhere, you just, you don't understand the sort of unwritten rules <laughs> of each locker room mm -hmm. and, and Mike, Mike was just terrific in explaining everything to me and Josh couldn't have been nicer. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing too. There's, there's, yeah, there's a decorum, like, um, you know, for a guy like Brady, if he's in there, like, I don't think a lot of people are going to bother him because they know, like, you know, Wednesday for five minutes or ten minutes in the locker room, he's going to talk. The rest of the time he's in there to sleep alone. Um, and, you know, there's things like that. But I just never really got too close to him in that sense. Like, I think at, at that point he was just um, becoming distant from us, but also I think to some extent becoming distant from his teammates. I, I do think that was an issue. Um, and yeah, that's, and that's, it's the, kind of the, 
But there's other players in the locker room you could really approach and get to know and talk to. The same thing in Buffalo, especially because it's a smaller beat. Like, you could get to know guys. Um, that's not the case at all at Alabama. I mean, the guys walk into that press conference room, you get questions, you have to raise your hand, um, and then they walk out. And there's no other opportunity really to talk to them. There is an open locker room after bowl games. And that's really it. Um, so the, the chances to, to get to know a guy on a personal level just aren't there. And, in fact, it's written in Alabama's media notes that if you try to contact a player by yourself, that they will punish you, essentially, for that. So, again, there's I, I think there's pros and cons of that strategy on their end. And, obviously, they're following the, uh, the wishes of Nick Saban to kind of keep their distance. Do you prefer covering college football to the NFL? Uh, so I think from an access standpoint, certainly easier, if you will, to cover the NFL. Um, but I think, in, you know, I, I've only covered Alabama on the college level, and obviously that's the pinnacle. That's one of the hardest programs to kind of get into, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure if I covered Coastal Carolina, like I'm sure I could get to know everybody and there would be better relationships there. You know, if you cover Coastal Carolina, you can probably walk into the coach's office and and have that sort of access. That's just how the, the smaller, if you will, programs are. Um, but you know, I do like one of the big things I like about covering college is just the atmosphere of the games. I think is is certainly better um, most of the time. I mean, if you're covering a Alabama Mercer game at 11 a.m. It's probably not great, but going into LSU last year, I didn't go to Tennessee because I was on leave, but um, you know, the Iron Bowl every year, like, that's just better than anything I really experienced at the NFL level. Even, I think, in a pretty good environment, uh, you know, Bill's games are that that's a good place to be if you're a fan. Uh, switch it over to Alabama. What, what are the players up to now? Are they just going, starting with the uh, summer workouts, just getting ready for, um, getting ready for the fall? What, what is actually going on with the players and, and are, is, are all the guys on campus right now? Yeah, my understanding is they are. Um, you know, there's summer school, the second summer school session that's going on right now. There's nothing obviously organized practice wise that the, coaches can run until fall camp begins in August, but players can still get together, you know, on the practice field and kind of run things on their own. Um, players are also kind of seeing their their personal coaches, personal trainers. Um, you see some of that on social media crop up. Um, but it, as far as I know, every, every player is there, um, as opposed to, you know, May, I think, is, is generally the time when they're away from school and, and elsewhere. Um, going over to Alabama basketball, uh, some big news uh, just the other day. Uh, Alabama added a fourth transfer in Muhammad Wagu, uh, six foot ten, two hundred twenty-five pound forward from West Virginia. Uh, what was your reaction to this? What and what role do you think he will play? Yeah, it seemed like it was trending that way. I mean, he went into the portal after Huggins um, stepped down, you know, with his DUI arrest a couple weeks ago, and there's a lot of West Virginia guys that did, um, and then he, he visited DePaul, he visited Kansas State, and by the time he got to Alabama, it seemed like there was momentum for him to come here. Um, and it's it's, I think it's Waggy based on the uh, oh, Waggy. Okay, sorry, pronunciation I, guy. I, yeah, yeah, it surprised I, me as well. <laughs> and he's um, 
he was born in New York, but he actually he had, he had some family in New York, but he moved to um, Mali in West Africa and uh, grew up there. And he grew up playing soccer, but he grew to be six foot ten. And you know, at a certain point, it becomes awkward to play soccer at that height. I'm six foot four. I think it's awkward for me to, to do a lot of things. I can't imagine being six foot ten, and so they actually said, "Why don't you go to New York?" And he had a cousin that lived in New York, and he started playing basketball there in New York City, and then ended up going to a different high school in Pennsylvania. Um, but because he had gone to school in Mali, his credits did not transfer to go to a, a normal university here, uh, which is why he went to a junior college for two years, ended up missing his first year because of an injury. Played one year, was a, a, a JUCO All-American, went to West Virginia last year, didn't play a ton, about 10 minutes a game. Um, but, you know, for a guy who's fairly new to basketball, he's got height, he's got the raw ability. You know, I, I don't want to call him a developmental player necessarily because I think he only has two years of eligibility left, so the, the runway is, is kind of short. But he, he provides them with that potential rim protector. Um, you know, that he lost Betty Yako and if nothing else, he gives you a guy who can just give you five fouls a game and kind of take some pressure off Nick Pringle to stay out of foul trouble. Who do you think is going to be the go-to player on this basketball team when they need a bucket? Like, obviously, Brandon Miller was that guy last year. Is there going to be one particular player who is going to emerge in that Brandon Miller type of role where, hey, it's uh, it's crunch time. We need a bucket. We need a key shot made. Uh, we're, we're, we're giving you the ball, clearing out space, you know, whatever, running a play for you. Who do you think that player is going to be? I think it's going to come from one of three guys. And I think Mark Sears, given what he did last year, granted he he faded a little bit down the stretch last year. Shooting the last eight or ten games was not great. He kind of had that burst at the end of the San Diego State game. But, yeah, I don't know if I would call him a go-to player last year for them. I think he has the potential to, to be one for them. Aaron Estrada, the, the Hofstra transfer, the guard, who was a, a very prolific scorer in you know, CAA, for Hofstra um, could be that guy, and then Grant Nelson. You know, Grant Nelson's six foot eleven, but he's the guy who they can run a, a pick and roll for. He can, you know, pick up the, the pass and, and shoot from the outside. I mean, that's his game. He's he's a big that plays like a guard. So, um, you know, there's there's three players there that we'll have to just kind of see as the season goes on and they get into those moments. Who is getting the ball? Who are they running the plays for? But uh, as of right now, I would be surprised by the end of the season if their leading scorer is not one of those three players. And do you have a sense of where Alabama will be uh, preseason, where they will rank uh, in the top 25, and where will they be projected to finish in the SEC? Yes, yeah, so I would say top 25. You know, we're seeing some of those polls come out and come out really since the day the season ended but they're somewhere in the teens I would imagine um, I think there's some people that are going to not write them off but discount them a little bit from where they ended last year because they lost Brandon Miller um, because they lost Noah Clowney and Quinterly um, and just say you know they've lost a lot of production but I also think there's a lot of people who are smart if you will across college basketball that 
are giving Nate Oates the benefit of the doubt and are saying, you know, they, they've been a good team every year that he's, he's been there, um, you know, after his first year, basically. And he's going to find out what he has and he, he's going to use it well. And he's got out portal and he's gotten Grant Nelson and Aaron Estrada and Latrell Wrightsell. Um, and now, you know, Muhammad Waggy and he's gotten these freshmen to come in and they've replaced what they've lost. I think some people will look at it that way. So somewhere in the, the teens, 12, 13, 14 is, is what my guess would be. In terms of the SEC, I think I wouldn't be surprised if they're picked, you know, to, to win. Um, but I could also see an Arkansas pick. I can also see Tennessee, <clears throat> you know, Kentucky, if people are confident they can bounce back. Like, yeah, it, it's going to be one of them. But if not number one, I'd say number two or three. What grade would you give Nate Oates for his uh – is his offseason and his roster reconstruction after so many players uh, for various reasons uh, left the program? I think, you know, A minus. I think there's very yeah. few things to, to quibble with um, with what they've done. I think, you know, when you, you, don't, when you went into the offseason knowing you're going to lose Brandon Miller, knowing you're going to lose Noah Clowney, you just had to deal with that. Um, and they probably went in knowing they'd lose Namari Barnett and they'd probably lose Jaden Bradley. So it's hard to really blame that on him. Um, and then, you know, the Quinterly thing and Betty Ako probably took them by surprise. But, you know, so far I think they've handled it well, especially in, in kind of building back that front court, going out and getting Brett Nelson and Waggy and um, and obviously getting Jaron Stevenson, you know, the, the freshman who reclassified. You beat out North Carolina for that guy. I think the only question, well, there's there's two questions. Who is the wing? You know, can Rylan Griffin step up and be that number three for him? Um, that's a question. You know, I think they, they tried to go out and get Arthur Kaluma from Creighton. That didn't work out. He went to um, Kansas State. So who starts at three? And then who's your backup point guard? You know, because you lose Quinterly. They tried to get Joe Toussaint from, um, from West Virginia. He ended up going to Texas Tech. So the backcourt, you could probably use, use one more guy there, and they do have an open scholarship. But, again, these are minor things, and, um, you know, it's hard to say anything but, you know, an A or A- minus for them. Uh, agreed. Uh, Mike, do you have a sense that uh, with Quinterly leaving, I, I feel like there's more to the story than what we have heard or I, I don't know what your reporting has informed but I still don't understand why he left the program. Is is there an easy way to explain it and maybe I'm overthinking it? I wish there was um, and I wish I had a complete picture myself you know to the extent that I could you know report something or say something. I, I, I just don't. Um, you know I think there's speculation in both directions that um, you know, he really took them by surprise and uh, maybe was lured by NIL opportunities elsewhere or lured by um, the potential of starting somewhere else if he got the sense that Alabama is going to start Estrada and Sears. Um, it could also go the other way that, you know, Nate Oates um, kind of gave him that sense that they didn't feel like they had a, a bigger role of, of for him as maybe he wanted. And, and suggested that he go elsewhere. I, I just don't know the truth um, in either direction. I wish I did, but I agree that it's the timing of it. And I, and I, well, I'll say this about the timing too. There was speculation before he came back out of the draft, like going back to May, that he would come out of the draft but then go into the portal. 
Um, and that didn't happen right away, but it did happen a few weeks later. So, you know, the timing for late June, I think, is tough for Alabama to fill that spot. But it just kind of is what it is in college basketball these days. Oh, man. Uh, this is really great stuff, Mike. Um, you can follow Mike Rodak at Mike Rodak on Twitter, uh, at Bama underscore 24-7. And uh, that's part of at 24-7 Sports and at CBS Sports as well. Mike, your insights are so much appreciated. And thank you for being a regular on our show. Really appreciate it. Have a great rest of the day, and uh, hey, we'll catch up with you next week. Thank you so much, Mike. You too. Thank you so much. All right, you're listening to Big Noon Sports. We will be right back after this quick, quick break. From T-Town to the Plains, this is Alabama's most in-depth analysis on the SEC. This is Big Noon Sports. Always seen their clothing around town on game days. Check out Christopher Mobley on the Strip. Luxury game day apparel redefined. It's the only place in town where you can find Todd Hoops apparel. Clothing designed for the modern day entrepreneur, golf enthusiast, and athleisure fanatic. They've got Peter Millar, Viore, Grayson, and Mizzenamain. And if you haven't tried the Mizzenamain dress shirts, you've got to. You can find them at 1410 University Boulevard on the Strip. Also, they've got a great e-commerce site at ChristopherMobley.shop. So check out Christopher Mobley. Luxury game day apparel redefined. Securing the best mortgage possible requires a lender who has knowledge, is trustworthy, and treats customers like family. And no one is better at all of this than the mortgage miracle worker, Haley Sansing. Based right here in Tuscaloosa, Haley Sansing has spent decades working in the mortgage industry. With Haley, it's personal, holding your hand from contract to close. With Haley, it's about one thing, you. Call Haley on her cell, yes, her cell, 205-792-1813. That's 205-792-1813. Let Haley help you. NLMS number 230376. Welcome back in to Big Noon Sports. A lot of great insight there from Mike Rodak of Bama 24-7 talking about uh, his days covering the NFL, uh, the the differences and similarities between covering the Bills and the Patriots in Alabama, and then also just uh, sort of digging into uh, what Nate Oates has been able to do this offseason in uh, putting together a very formidable roster and another good team. And uh, I think Mike is spot on in, in, in suggesting that Alabama will begin the season ranked somewhere 12 to 14 in that area, maybe uh maybe as high as 10, maybe as low as maybe 15 or 16. But nonetheless, uh, this is a program, man, it just looks built to last. It feels like it's built to last with Nate Oates. What a home run hire 
by Greg Byrne. I mean, just uh, just a phenomenal job by sort of plucking Nate Oates out of obscurity uh, there in New York. And I love the fact that Greg Byrne was a one-man operation there when it came to uh, – he was a one-man search committee. And um, I'm not a fan of these firms that so many different schools hire uh, at a cost of millions and millions of dollars to basically tell the school uh, obvious candidates. But um, but yeah, what what a what a terrific job Nate Oates has done. Um, all right, in our next segment, we are going to replay one of my all-time favorite interviews, and. Uh, a couple weeks ago, or about a week ago, I guess, somewhere in there, we had uh, the legendary Wade Boggs join us, who, for my money, is one of the top three, four hitters of, of all time. And with my own eyes, maybe the best pure hitter I've ever seen in baseball. But we don't talk just about baseball. We talk uh, about a lot of things, including the urban myth or was it a myth that wade boggs once drank 102 beers 102 beers on a cross-country flight from boston to la we're going to get to the bottom of that in this wade boggs interview which will be coming up next on big noon sports brought to you by haley sansing of union home mortgage we will be right back listen up this is a good one Covering SEC sports like Kudzu on the roadside. This is Big Noon Sports. Tide 100.9, Tuscaloosa weather. A mix of sun and clouds this afternoon. Scattered showers and storms around through the evening hours. The high today, 92. Tonight's low, 73. For tomorrow morning, sunshine. Scattered showers and storms forming again by afternoon. The high, 91. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 90 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Actually, for the second time, Wade Boggs joined us last year, and I want to tip my Rays or Sox or Yankees cap to my good buddy Sammy Lee, who I've now known. By the way, Sammy's listening. It's been 41 years I've known Sammy. But, uh, Wade, first of all, welcome to the show. Really appreciate you taking some time with us. And set us up with uh, how you've got uh, a really good friendship with a, a, an angler from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Hey guys, good, good to be on with you. Um, yeah, I met Sammy uh, a few years back uh, when he was with Ranger, and uh, actually Ranger uh, and the Tampa Bay Devil Rays at the time uh, sort of commissioned a, a specialty boat that they gave me for my retirement uh, here in Tampa Bay. So uh, Sammy was part of that, but uh, we go way back with the. Uh, with uh, friendship with my dad and various things like that. And I've fished a few times with Sammy, and uh, he's a character. He really is. He doesn't like Alabama football, does he? <laughs> no, 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 not, not at all. Imagine you're sitting there in your ranger, and he's just talking your ear off about uh, 
the Alabama-Georgia game in 84. Uh, anyway, hey, let's talk some baseball for a minute, and then we're just going to scatter and talk about some really fun stuff, although baseball is fun. Um, the Rays are for real, aren't they? Let's hope so. Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, playing as, as well as anybody. And, and uh, the hopefully that uh, they're old enough in, in baseball years to know that it's a marathon and not a sprint. That, uh, you know, at any given time, you can run into a buzzsaw and next thing you know, you've lost uh, 10 out of 12, 12 out of 15, and uh, things are going south. Uh, we did that in 96 when we went to the West Coast. We lost 14 out of 15, and uh, we were going pretty good at the time. But uh, coincidentally, Toronto had lost just about uh, the same. So it didn't really affect us too much in the standings. But, um, yeah, they, they can run away with this deal and clinch it by August and uh, sort of cruise into the playoffs. Wade, when you were growing up, was there anything – special or unique that you did to try to develop your hand-eye coordination that really helped you with your hitting and what advice i have an eight-year-old who just absolutely is infatuated with baseball what advice would you have for young kids who are just sort of getting going in the sport for how to become uh the next wade boggs and get over three thousand career hits in the uh, major (laughs) leagues uh, get off Nintendo, number one. Um, that's uh, When I was growing up, uh, we had kids in the neighborhood. We'd find a vacant lot, and uh, we'd be out there at 7, 7.30 in the morning and play all day. You know, we'd play stickball and, and whatever it took to, you know, just wiffle ball. That was, that was one of our, our favorites. Um, nowadays, you go buy a vacant lot, and it's just a vacant lot. Um, you know, kids don't pick up the wiffle ball and bat anymore, and and uh, those that do, you can tell that, that their IN coordination is a little bit better than, uh, than the other kids. Um, in my opinion, um, the video games do not um, enhance IN coordination. And uh, so get out there and uh, play wiffle ball and, and play as much as you can. I mean, that's, that's the big thing. I mean... Get your friends out there, and and whether it's a broomstick with a tennis ball or, or what have you, that's that's the biggest thing. Is is uh, just swing at a movable object. That's that's the biggest that's the biggest thing. Did you always know that, or did you always feel that you had just a really really uh, spot on good hand eye coordination, or is it something that you developed? Oh no, I was born with it. It, it was something that that. I could always hit the ball harder and further than all the kids uh, my age growing up. And and I would make more contact than other kids. Um, didn't have the fear of striking out because I made contact all the time. So that that would allow me when, when I got older and uh, played professionally and then once got to the big leagues that I didn't have to worry about getting to do strikes because um, you got to throw it over the little white house and and if you don't, then uh, it's a ball, and I'm going to take it. And if you do, I'm going to swing and make uh, solid contact. Wade, what was a pitch in your storied years in Major League Baseball that you kind of had trouble with, a pitcher that uh, you owned, maybe even a Hall of Famer, and then maybe somebody you struggled with? Probably the, the one pitch that, that, that gave me uh, fits, 
uh, Roberto Hernandez, when he was playing for the White Sox, he threw a about a 92, 93 mile an hour split. And for someone that hits by recognition and, and knowing that the split's going to tumble and go out of the strike zone, I could never see his ball tumble. And unlike Jack Morris, who threw his split about 87, 88, I could see Jack's tumble out of his hand. But for some reason, Roberto Hernandez, I just couldn't pick that up. And, and, and so that was, uh, thank God everybody didn't have, uh, uh, 93 mile an hour split back in the day. But, um, yeah, it was, it wasn't a piece of cake, uh, or a day at the beach to face Randy Johnson. He was, he was, uh, one of the guys that, that gave me fits. I was three for 27 lifetime off of him and two of the three came in, uh, one game. So, uh, he, he wasn't fun to face. Uh, Wade, you played in the longest game in professional baseball history when you were in and the minors. And that'll yep. never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you were playing for Pawtucket and, uh, and you were facing, uh, Cal Ripken and the Rochester Red Wings. It lasted 33 innings, eight hours, 25 minutes. Do you remember your stat line from that game? And, and just what, what, what sticks out to you about that game? Well, it was Easter Eve, and it was freezing cold. And, and we were hoping that uh, guys in the lineup would break bats because we had a 55-gallon drum that we were burning them in just to stay warm. Um, it was a brutal, windy, cold night, uh, wind blowing in about 25 miles an hour from left field. And uh, I was 4 for 12 in the game and drove in the tying run in the, t- uh, in the bottom of the 22nd inning. Um <laughs> to tie the game at 2-2. So that was um, – and then we played till about uh, 4.45. And the umpires finally called the game because they couldn't get a hold of the uh, league president. And then we uh, concluded it in June and only went one inning, sort of anticlimactic. Uh, but at that time, uh, Major League Baseball was on strike. And we were the, we were the, the big game in town. And uh, – they had asked if we would go up to Fenway Park and, and resume that game and, and play in Fenway Park. And we as players said no, that uh, we didn't want to cross any picket lines or or sort of uh, step on any of the big league guys' toes. So we concluded it in Pawtucket and, uh, like I said, went one inning and, and Dave Koza drove in Marty Barrett for the winning run. Hmm. Who did you watch growing up maybe emulate? Pete Rose. Yeah, Pete Rose, Reggie Jackson. Um, they were my two go-to guys that uh, I always love watching. And and uh, and it was super thrill once I got to meet them, once I got to the big league. So um, they were they were my two guys. Wade, uh, you obviously spent the majority of your career with the Boston Red Sox, 82 to 92, and then 93 – you went to the dark side, as many Boston fans would say, by playing for the Yankees. I'm a big Yankees fan myself. But what was that transition like, and how did Boston fans treat you when you went from Boston to New York? And, and you know, Boston and New York is really one of the great rivalries in all of sports. Well, it's not an easy transition. But uh, the fact was that uh, at the end of the 91 season, Mr. Jockey had offered me a seven-year deal uh, for $37 million uh, to stay in Boston. And 
I wanted to sign right there. And we were talking about it in the parking lot after the season in 91. And unfortunately, in uh, January of 92, uh, she had slipped and fell in a uh, bathtub and, and died. And uh, so when I got to spring training, uh, the front office took the offer off the table. I uh, played the 92 season and then uh, became a free agent. So it wasn't uh, like I left Boston. I was I was looking forward to signing that seven-year deal, staying in Boston and being a Red Sox player for life. And once I became a free agent, um, you know, all, all chips are off the table at that, at that point. Um, so... Uh, Mr. Steinbrenner was uh, suspended at the time, but uh, his son-in-law, Joe Malloy, had called and set up a meeting. And my agent and I uh, met with uh, the Yankees and wound up signing a three-year deal. And wound up in uh, 96, winning a World Series. So it was uh, it was uh, a good move on my part. But uh, like I said, I wanted to stay in Boston. I didn't want to leave. And... and being back in the good graces of uh, the Boston fans now, my first game back in uh, in Fenway wasn't uh, um, too gracious. But, um, you know, it never is when a player leaves an organization and goes back with a, a, a different team. Well, speaking of winning that World Series in 96, uh, I was in New York at the time. And I was there uh, when you guys uh, won it. And y'all just say, yeah, (laughs) but, uh, you know, one of the most memorable scenes of of that entire season, and it's just forever etched in my brain is, uh, you on top of the horse, uh, the police, uh, horse. Could, could you just tell us that story of how that came about? Well, it's probably one of the smartest moves I've ever made. Uh, (laughs) that, 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 that picture's made me a lot of money, but, um, yeah, we were doing a dog pile, and 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 the fans were so gracious. Uh, they didn't storm the field. They were just standing in front of their seats and clapping and cheering us on. And and we decided as a as a unit to uh, take a victory lap. And the next thing I know, I'm in left center field on the back of a police horse. And until this day, I've never gone back and looked at any video of of how I got upon that horse. But um, it was uh, one of those surreal moments that riding around Yankee Stadium on the back of a police horse and and just looking at the mass of humanity that that are cheering us on and and it was it was really really neat for New York at the time because they hadn't won in 18 years and and finally got a championship back in New York. Wade, one of the very few things that uh, Lars, Matt, and Wade Boggs have in common is that we love a cold beer. Quick story. Yesterday, Lars and I are in Tuscaloosa, and we'd made some sales calls, and we're just goofing off. I said, pull in here and let, let me grab a couple of tall boys. And so I get back to the car, and I pull out, and I hand it. Lars, you remember what you said? I do, I do not. You said, what, they didn't have any PBR? Because uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of notorious right. in, in my Boggs league. is blue. Boggs oh, is cool man. blue. You Bog, gotta, you Bog. gotta, you gotta go there, man. I'm telling you. I have the facts are out there. boys. Yeah, they're they're awesome. I love them. How did you develop a re- relationship with uh, Past Blue Ribbon Beer? Well, I, I uh, hired a private investigator, and we did some uh, soul searching, some background checks, and <laughs> and uh, back yeah, back in '83, uh, I was in a in a bar in Milwaukee, and and you know they've been using this campaign ad for a long time, and and Cool Blue is way boxed. Uh, there's there's no question about it, and 
And it's, um, if you don't believe me, go to uh, Cool Blue uh, or Boggs's Blue, uh, Boggs'sCoolBlue.com and see for yourself that uh, the similarities uh, aren't just coincidental. But, uh, no, it kind of does look like you. Oh, it, it does. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, uh, it's, it's Wade Boggs, by the way. So I, I've got to ask, since we're talking about beer, is the urban legend of you uh, imbibing 73 beers on one flight, cross-country flight, is that true? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's, it's not a myth. It's, it's documented proof. What is this? Is that your metabolism? I guess. I guess. I, 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 you know, a lot of people have different gifts, and I guess that was <laughs> one gift that, that I reluctantly got. But, um, yeah, don't try it. Uh, if you do try it, try it at home. No. Uh, yeah. Unbelievably. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, don't drink and drive because in 1980, still Securing the best mortgage possible requires a lender who has knowledge, is trustworthy, and treats customers like family. And no one is better at all of this than the mortgage miracle worker, Haley Sansing. Based right here in Tuscaloosa, Haley Sansing has spent decades working in the mortgage industry. With Haley, it's personal, holding your hand from contract to close. With Haley, it's about one thing, you. Call Haley on her cell, yes, her cell, 205-792-1813. That's 205-792-1813. Let Haley help you. NLMS number 230376. Probably seen their clothing around town on game days. Check out Christopher Mobley on the Strip. Luxury game day apparel redefined. It's the only place in town where you can find Todd Hoops apparel. Clothing designed for the modern day entrepreneur, golf enthusiast, and athleisure fanatic. They've got Peter Malone. Laura, Viore, Grayson, and Mizzen and Main. And if you haven't tried the Mizzen and Main dress shirts, you've got to. You can find them at 1410 University Boulevard on the Strip. Also, they've got a great e-commerce site at ChristopherMobley.shop. So check out Christopher Mobley, luxury game day apparel redefined. <laughs> WTUG HD2 Northport and W265CG Tuscaloosa. Tide 100.9 and streaming on the Tide 100.9 app. Welcome to Big Noon Sports featuring Lars Anderson, New York Times bestselling author of 12 books and a 20-year veteran of Sports Illustrated and Matt Coulter, a former Alabama broadcaster of the year and longtime media personality. Here's Lars and Matt. Welcome in to Hour 2 of Big Noon Sports. By Haley Sansing and Union Home Mortgage. Matt Coulter, my running partner, is taking the day off. And uh, for the next hour, we are going to have the pleasure of being joined with Steve Irvine, longtime sports writer and uh, longtime friend of the show. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Lars. How you doing, man? Doing wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, for uh, pinch hitting for Matt today. Really appreciate it. 
And, you know, before we get into any uh, sports, I, I did want to dig into your career a little bit. Uh, and I know we've done this sort of piecemeal a few times, but um, can you just sort of walk our listeners through your career and in uh, your time out on the West Coast and, and what you covered and 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 why you enjoy i mean you you when we talk i i can tell just how much you enjoy journalism and sports writing and, and just if you can express to us what what it is about this job that you love so much well you know it, it's funny is is when i've known i wanted to be a sports writer you know since i was in sixth grade actually it was sixth grade i was probably what 12 years old and we had a little uh, memorograph piece of paper that was a newspaper for the sixth grade newspaper. And I wrote a story, and I'll, I'll never forget this. I wrote a story, and one of the uh, one of the best-looking girls in the school, one of the cutest girls in the school, told me she liked my story. And I thought, man, you know, when you look like me, you know, you're trying to find every angle you can. And I'm like, man, this this might be my route to finding a pretty girl, you know. And um, <laughs> little did I know at the time. But, uh, but you know, I, it's really something that I've always, always thought I wanted to do and, and, um, kind of, you know, didn't take a, a quick route to it. You know, I just, uh, kind of messed around early, early in my, in my early twenties and, and, um, was just doing whatever and, and it kind of flunked out of a couple of schools and I'm not really flunked out, but kind of dragged myself out of a couple of schools and my dad called and he said, Hey, why don't you come out? He lived in California. He said, why don't you come out, get in school here? You know, you want to be, you've always wanted to do this. Why don't you come out and get in school? You know, and, and cause you know, his deal was, you know, you don't know people out here. You can't, you know, you, you won't go have fun, you know, and that type of stuff. And so I did, I went out there and got it in Long Beach city college and then Cal state Fullerton and, um, got in a newspaper at, at, at uh, at the Long Beach Press Telegram there, and really it was kind of lucky that I got in there. I, I actually spent a year as a sports information director at Long Beach City College, which was a blast. Me and another guy that had no clue what we were doing, and somehow we figured out how to do that. And the guy that covered the junior colleges for Long Beach City, or for the Press Telegram, said, hey, now, why don't you come, why don't you try to come and, and you know, work with us? And so I, I got in there, you know, answering phone. You know how this is. I got in there answering uh, phone calls for high school games, and um, I was having a blast, and and you know, just even doing that. And like two months into that, basically the whole high school uh, uh, staff, you know, we had seven. We had said at the time we had seven people covering high schools, and six of them left. And and I'm like, I'm just, and I'm sitting there just answering, you know, kind of a clerk and. They said, Hey, you want to, you know, you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, I want to do this. So kind of got in there at the, at the press telegram and really a good paper in, in Southern California, especially at the time. I uh, like every other paper. It's, you know, it's, it's changed. And, um, but you know, just started covering preps there and did that for a long time and loved, you know, I really did. I really loved covering high school sports and, and, uh, you know, then got, to, got the opportunity to cover USC for three years and, uh, UCLA for a year and then then also just uh, right at the my end of my time there we um, kind of we had a somebody else had bought us and we were merging with other papers and 
I you know I, I kind of got shoved out of the uh, uh, vat and you know of the covering you know colleges and basically was covering kind of a, like a local columnist type thing of of, of colleges and and uh, for for the Long Beach paper and you know was fortunate at that point to um, get out and and you know my my wife and I we wanted to come back and we wanted to come back to the south we both were, were ra- born and raised in, or not born but we were raised in Huntsville and. Uh, so got a chance to, to come to the Birmingham News, and and uh, you know that was kind of a funny story too. Is is the the, the job opening was to cover the uh, college um, state colleges is what they called it, where you covered everybody. You know, you covered basically everybody, but uh, UAB, uh, Alabama, and Auburn. You know, and, and and that job was open, and so I applied for that. And Tom Ehrenberg was incredible. Oh, guy, yeah, an incredible he's, sports guy. Yeah, yeah, you know Tom. My, and, he's and, my colleague at Alabama now. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, absolutely. He's tremendous. And he called and, um, you know, and we talked and we were setting up an interview and he called like the next day and, I, and, and he said, Hey, um, let me ask you a question. I said, Okay, you know, and, and he said, What, if you were to come here, what would be the kind of the job, like your dream job? What would you want to cover? If, if you had a choice and, and I said, well, you know, I said, college, you know, state colleges, of course. He's like, no, nah. he says, I'm not, you know, quit, quit BSing me, you know, uh, what, what would you want to cover? And I said, well, I mean, if you're asking me which, what would beat I'd really want, I said, I'd love the Alabama beat. And he said, well, that's good because that's the one, op- that's, that's the one that's open now. <laughs> Excuse me. And the guy, you know, Steve Kirk, who had been covering Alabama, wanted to change. So he wanted to go into state colleges. So, uh, you know, Alabama beat was open, and, and I came to an interview for it, and uh, fortunately got the job. Spent, spent uh, I think it was four, four or five seasons covering, or years, uh, school years covering Alabama, I think four. And, uh, you know, then went into the UAB, covering UAB the rest of my time there, and, and uh, just uh, really enjoy I mean, what I was, with, and, and you'll you'll appreciate this, is, is uh what I was fortunate at is, is in my entire time in daily newspapers, I had, I had two of the best editors that, in, you know, a guy named Jim McCormick in, in Long Beach was incredible and then Tom was incredible. So I never got the experience of working for a bad editor, you know, which, which I think is really, was really fortunate for me and it really helped me grow so much and it really, I think it really helped me enjoy the job, you know, because I, I sometimes I, you know, as we all do, we I have friends and I, you know, I see how, you know, I kind of see them struggling with their editors and bad leadership and and uh, you know, I never had I never had to face that and and that that was um yeah and you know how that is I mean and that was big I mean that was that's that's been big in my career. Yeah, um, I've always felt that there's a reason that they're editors and you are the writer. They, <laughs> this is horrible to say, but, uh, in, in my view, uh, editors are failed writers, but, uh, <laughs> that's kind of a joke. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. you know, so I, I've, for the most part, I've had really good experiences with editors throughout my career. Uh, this one editor, Rich O'Brien, who I was, he was my editor for maybe 12, 13 years at Sports Illustrated. He, we were like best friends, you know, and it, it is so rare to have a relationship like that where I, I trusted him so much that it didn't bother me 
you know, he didn't even need to ask me if he was making changes because I always knew it was going to make the story better. Um, and, and going back to like writing and, and, uh, girls, I will say this. I had just, I just finished my, my first book, um, called Pickup Artist. And I had recently just gotten a hard copy and for whatever reason I, I had it in my like book bag after, after work one day, uh, and I met some friends in, in New York at a, at a bar for a after work drink and one of, uh, one of my buddies, uh, who was also a writer, he started, you know, talking to these girls and telling them that I had just written this book and, um, you know, sure enough, when I when I I was asked to show them the book, so I did, and it turns out that that book is like it was the ultimate aphrodisiac. I mean, it was just <laughs> it was a magnet, uh, and so I was like, okay, I need to write more yeah. books. So that's the real motivation uh, for my book writing career. Um, but but Steve is have there been uh, just a few athletes who you have come across uh, that really have left an impression on you just uh for i don't know their presence or just their their character uh just uh, or just you know just someone or or two that you just really liked and thought that they were really good uh guys or or girls Right. Uh, you know, there's been a lot. You know, you know, one thing that really, uh, you know, I go back in this a lot and I think about that kind of thing a lot. And, and covering, covering high school sports, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, people that I covered back in those days that, you, you know, you would never have heard of or people have never heard of. But that, I, those almost strike me a little more than I remember. There was a there was a kid named Marcus Hunter, and this is this uh, you know I, I've thought about I've written a short story on this, but um, kind of a memoir type story. But this kid was was from Compton, California, and marvelous player. I mean, mar- really marvelous. Player. He was a safety, and it, but he was you know he was five foot nine, maybe five foot ten, and uh, you know just was was not a guy really that was. Um, you know, he was going to get lost in the shuffle because of his size. But, um, you know, he lived this, this crazy life. I mean, I, I did a, I did a big feature on him and, and, uh, not even a big feature. I did a feature on him and, and I went, went by his house and, and was talking to him in his kitchen table in the, in the, just the bad, bad part of Compton. And I hear this gunshot and it was real close. And, uh, Doe kind of dove under the table and he kind of just was sitting at the table laughing at me. And, uh, I looked up and I said, what, what in the world? And he said, oh, that's my, that's my brother. He's probably mad at my other brother and he shot, he, he shot it, you know, shot into the wall. And that's sure enough that what happened, you know, I mean, this, you know, this kid, I mean, something we can't imagine is the kind of life he lived. And he, that kid used to call me. We did a, we did a weekly, um, stats package. And his coach was a, was a marvelous guy, but his coach just didn't believe in stats. You know, he's just one of those that didn't, didn't really care, you know, and, and, and Marcus would call me every week and to give me his stats so he could be in the stat leaders of, of, um, of, of the area, you know, so, so, uh, so he's just a marvelous kid. And, and, you know, I remember he, he went off to, uh, Snow Junior College 
and I thought this is great. He got away. He's gonna find you know he's gonna he's find a place out of there. Well, you know he's back within a year and he's in gangs and and he uh, about a year after he got back he uh, I was on the sideline of a, of a of his high school and I kind of feel somebody walk up behind me and stand next to me and and it's Marcus. And I hadn't talked to Marcus in a while at that point. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was just so good to see him. And, and like, he's, you know, we, we're watching the game. And I look over about midway through the second quarter, and he's crying. And I'm like, Mark, and I, I mean, this is a gang kid now. There's a kid, this kid, that might be the only time he ever cried. And yeah. and, and I looked up and said, Marcus, what, what in the world? And and what are you crying about? He says, man, I missed this. I mean, Sorry, Steve, you faded out there for a second. Yep, go go ahead. Just repeat that. Why was he crying? Well, because he, he, he missed high school football. You know, and he's like, he's crying. He's like, man, I missed high school football. Well, about three months later, I get a phone call, and um, just walking across a... Uh, just a, a shopping center going over to get a hamburger uh, and forgot his gun and um, guys pulled up on him down in the day I think he was with another guy another athlete that was a, uh, a basketball player they ended up playing the Pepperdine and a couple other players on the state and, and they basically looked at him and said you didn't see anything and you know, Mark you know and that's the thing you know that's those are the type of people that I remember more than anything I mean that guy that guy touched my life and the thing is, you know, uh, he, he, he didn't, I never told him, you know, and, and that made me mad. And then I, and I was mad at myself. You know, because that touched my life. I enjoyed those phone calls, and I enjoyed covering him. You know, get to know him as much as you can, and and, and that it really bothers me, you know, because, um, you know, that's the type of thing that I remember, you know. And I'll say, you know, we cover, you cover a lot more than I have, but, but it's just, um, just kind of yeah, that's, that's a very, very powerful, yeah, very powerful, moving story. All right, we're going to be right back with Steve Irvine. This is Big Noon Sports. We'll be back. The best sports talk in Alabama. This is Big Noon Sports. Tide 100.9, Tuscaloosa weather. A mix of sun and clouds this afternoon. Scattered showers and storms around through the evening hours. The high today, 92. Tonight's low, 73. For tomorrow, morning sunshine. Scattered showers and storms forming again by afternoon. The high, 91. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 89 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Welcome back in to Big News Sports. I am Lars Anderson. Matt Coulter has the day off. We are brought to you by Haley Sansing of Union Home Mortgage. And filling in for my buddy Matt is our good friend Steve Irvine, longtime sports writer. And uh, just 
having a really um, powerful discussion here. Steve, unfortunately, your, your phone's going a little bit in and out. And uh, I, I was able to get pretty much the gist of what you were saying about this young man who touched you so much. But if, if you could just sort of just recap that uh, for our listeners who, who may not have been able to, uh, to uh, understand just because of the bad cell connection. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I'm, I should be fine now. I'm back home. I was uh, I was driving, uh, taking my daughter to a dentist appointment. It kind of ran long. So uh, basically, there was, uh, there was uh, a kid named Marcus Hunter that when I worked out in in California, at, uh, he went to Dominguez High School in, in Compton, and you know, in middle of you know rough, rough, rough area. And you know, he was a kid that just you know I got to know uh, just just you know marvelous athlete, but not you know not one that was really fit the uh the mold of a you know big time college but i mean he he did talent wise but he was just probably a little small and and uh he's just a guy that that i got to know you know pretty well you know as, as well as you can i think you know covering that and and you know especially being from a a different world than i was used to you know and and had, had done a story on him and and, uh, you know, he called me weekly and, and would give me his stats because his coach, again, his coach was a great man, but just didn't really care about stats. And, and so he would call me with his stats so he could be in the weekly leaders. And, and uh, just a kid that, um, you know, looked like he was going to get out and went out to a junior college in, in, uh, in Utah and, and um, you know, away from all the trappings of, of Compton and, and had spent a year there and we really didn't even last a year and came home and, and got back in the gang life and, and, uh, you know, I, I saw him at a high school game about a year and a half after he graduated or, but, you know, or I think the second year, you know, second season since he graduated and, and, you know, he was in tears on the sideline because he couldn't play anymore and, and you know, he was talking about how much he missed it and, uh, you know, three weeks later, I get a phone call, and you know, and, and I, I told him at the time, I said, "We got to get you back in school. I, I'll help you. You know, I'll make calls. I'll do what I can to help you and get you back in school and get you back on the field. You know, but you don't need to." I told him, I said, "You don't need to be doing it here. You know, you need to leave." And and mm-hmm. um and he, you know, three weeks later, uh, I get a phone call from a, a friend that told me that Marcus was had been shot. You know, shot and killed. He was walking across a, a parking lot and, uh, you know, had forgot his gun at home and they pulled up on him and, and shot him, killed him. And, and, and just, it's just, you know, to this day, I think about him, really do. And, and, you know, did I know him well? No. I mean, I, you know, I never sat down and, and shared a meal with him. I, you know, I mean, it just, but, but, um, you, you know, this, I mean, you really, when you cover these, these guys, you, you, you feel like, um, feel like, I mean, you do know them and, and yeah. you feel like, uh, you know, but, but, you know, I, I just, I wish, I really do wish I would have told the kid that what he meant to me, because he really did. I mean, it really, he, he, you know, he he made my life better during that time. I mean, he did. I enjoyed the phone calls, you know, enjoy watching him play, and and really wanted the best for him. I really did, and 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 he just didn't get it. And and, and when you see that, I saw that a lot when I worked out there in California. You know, you saw a lot with, um, you know, you, you just you, you couldn't quite understand what they're going through. You know what? Some of those, some of these people, what some of these kids had to go through to uh, to say, oh, I, there's another story that, that you know, kind of along that line that would always amaze me was was uh, you know, kind of a, along the line of you don't really know what these some of these kids go through, and 
is uh, there was the same school Dominguez was 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 playing and they had a really good basketball program. Eventually, with Tyson Chandler played there, uh, Tayshawn Prince. But but they had kind of had a little lull where they were losing a lot of kids to other schools and and this the, this coach started uh, that was a graduate there that uh, his name was Russell Otis and he was the one that kind of turned the, the program around and and didn't do it didn't do it by the rules but but he did it and and so he um, his first team that was good. Uh, they, you know, they had, they're all homegrown kids and, and they were playing Linwood High School, which was their biggest rival. And, uh, they, um, they were playing for the, for the league championship and then, and then they were going to go on. So it was the biggest game of the year. And I show up to the game and, and their best player, you know, they come out to warm up and their best player's not there. So I thought, well, you know, maybe he's back. You know, you know, they're just still warming up. So maybe he's back in the locker room. Well, they get closer and he's in here. So I walk over to to the head coach and I said, hey, where, you know, where's X at? And he's like, well, he's not gonna be here. And I said, wait a minute, he's, he's what? And he says he's not gonna be here. And I said, was well, he hurt? Is he sick? What's going on? I gotta write something. And he said, well, he said, you just gotta say it's a, a you know a team decision or you know a, a personal decision. He can't be here. And I said. You gotta give me more than that. I said, I, you know, I, I, I'll do, I gotta find what's going on. He goes, he goes, do me a favor. And he said, just put that. And he goes, after it's over, I'll tell you what's going on. So I said, okay. So we did that. And so afterwards, what had happened was, and this is, you know, I can't understand this. I really can't. I mean, I've never lived this life. I had to live this. Well, he had been at school the day before. There were some gangbangers had jumped one of his friends and he jumped. He, he jumped in and basically beat the guys up, you know, for his friend, you know, just kind of taking, take his friend. He went on and it, it was a, they had a little courtyard there where the, where the, where the, uh, classrooms were. He's sitting in class about an hour later. He looks up and there's, uh, these gang members, these, some other gang members, they're walking across the, the, uh, courtyard and they have, um, like big coats on and he can tell they've got guns you know they've got guns underneath their their so he he jumps and he runs out and they somehow got on i don't know how they got on campus because it was a pretty fortified campus but they got on somehow he has to run out he jumps out the window basically runs across climbs over the fence and and they see him too late and they kind of chase him but he gets away well he has to go in hiding so because he because they're, they're gonna they're gonna shoot him and and so he misses like the biggest game of his life because of this, and he's like, mm. "You can't write that." And I'm like, "I'm not going to." I mean, I, you know, I no way. I'm, you know, I mean, yeah, journalistically, you go, "Man, that's a great story. I want to write it," but you can't. But, but again, I didn't know how to. I, I mean, when we're in, if I had a problem with somebody in high school, we fought, you know, and then we went on, and then things were cool, and and so just. Got getting to see that way of life and seeing what these kids that, you know, some of these kids, you know, that's the same school that uh, Richard Sherman came from, Dominguez High School. And, you know, look where he's, you know, look what he did, you know. And when you see the guys that come out and successful from those type of neighborhoods, you think like, man, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's incredible, you know, some of these things. And, and, you know, you've seen that and we've all seen that, but to kind of see it firsthand and be in the middle of it, sort of, you know, sort of. Uh, it was, it was, it was a, it was, it was a, a growth experience. It really was. You know, throughout 
my uh, writing career, I definitely uh, ventured into places that uh, weren't the safest. And um, one in particular, um, I did, uh, this was uh, in in one of my books, uh, a chapter on, on this underground world in New York City of drug basketball. And essentially what it is, and it still goes on today, is one drug dealer uh, will act like a general manager and he'll get his five best players. Another drug dealer will get his five best players and then they'll play uh, games uh, a hundred uh, to ones, by ones. And usually like in East Harlem, uh you know late at night uh there have been referees at these games but there's all this sort of side betting going on and the true drug, the, the drug dealers are playing for a you know quarter million half a million dollars and um the referees have been shot and killed uh because they made a call that angered you know whoever uh because there's also a lot of people in attendance who um are making all these side wagers and of course all of this wow. is you know immensely illegal right? Right, right, uh, right and and i and i was doing a profile of this guy named speedy williams and speedy was a point guard um you know he could have played in the nba there's no doubt about it but he felt that he was making more money on the street in these drug games uh, than he ever would have uh, if he had gone sort of legit, you know, and he was hustling. He could beat basically anybody one on one. And and so but but I Speedy took me to two of these games and I don't know if I was just naive or 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 what but i felt that because i'm i'm the journalist i'm the writer uh and that somehow gives me immunity from being uh hurt (laughs) frankly and uh and 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 sure enough speedy vouched for me and Uh and i was the only white person there at that particular in those particular games and it wasn't a problem um and uh and and but also you know i've gone to uh, really tough neighborhoods in in chicago um in uh in la uh philly you know it, but i've never felt that i again was going to be uh attacked or or hurt in any way because I had sort of this, you know, this badge of being a reporter. And is that naive, do you think? (laughs) I mean, it it worked out well for me. Maybe it was just like youthful exuberance, naivete. I don't know if I would do that again today now that I have kids. But uh, did did you ever did you ever did you understand what I'm what I'm saying? And and two, did you ever go into areas where you felt like you were putting yourself into harm's way? Oh, it, it is so funny you're saying that because I, I was the exact same way. I felt like I was, you know, I, I'm, for lack of a better term, I felt like I was bulletproof. I mean, I really did because because who I was, you know, because I was a writer and and. 
And uh, there were so many times. There was a, there was a, a time at Compton High School that uh, I was there, there was big games. Compton, I think it might have been Compton Dominguez or Compton Poly, maybe I don't remember. It was a big game, and it was it was full. And there's you know there's there's gangbangers everywhere, and there's you know, and I mean it's packed. I mean this this gym is packed, and and at halftime I had to go to the bathroom and I thought and I knew I knew a bathroom down kind of away from the main uh, gym that I knew wouldn't be crowded so I kind of walked back in there and uh, you know not even thinking I mean it was really kind of stupid to think this but I kind of go back in there where you know it's really down this this hallway where nobody is <laughs> yeah, sounds open like up, a bad idea right now <laughs> yeah, it really, it really open up this door and there's a uh, there's a, a, a dice a craps game going on and um, and I and I'm already inside and I kind of take a step backwards still looking at it but kind of you know kind of moonwalk backwards a little bit and there's a guy that stops me at the door. You know, a guy had already gotten in behind me. And I'm like, oh, gosh, this was not smart. And then, I mean, I'm talking about there's a lot of money on, you know, down there. And and so I'm thinking, like, you know, how am I going to get out of this? And all of a sudden I hear this guy go, Mr. Irvine. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, my goodness. So I looked down, and it was, a, it was a kid named Charles Levy who was an NFL. He had played he played in Arizona and played in the NFL later and he was a senior at Linwood High School and he was running this game and I said I said man Charles I'm so glad to see you right now and he goes ah he goes that's my man Mr. Irvine he's okay and and then a couple of them were like oh Mr. Irvine you know they I didn't know them but they knew who I was you know because I was a, a writer and I said um I said Charles I'll leave you guys alone and I start to go back start you know start out and he goes no man go to the bathroom you're fine I'm like no I'm I'm leaving I'm leaving. I, you know, and so I, I, I left there and, and he, he, we laughed about that. I, I saw him, you know, I would see him every now and again over the years and he, he brought that up almost every time I saw him. Remember that time? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I remember that time. So, so I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember another time running out of, uh, running out of Compton High School, uh, after a game and, and I had to get back. You know, that was back in the days you really didn't, you didn't send remotely. You had to go back to the, to the paper and you know we had the trash 80s but but you know you really you know you kind of had to go back and so i'm running to my car and and um some guys you know they kind of start like what are you running at and and i just All right, uh, good stuff. Uh, more stories exactly where yep. you're coming from. Uh, yeah yeah um yeah Man, uh, yeah, we could talk about this for a long time, but, uh, hey, we're going to move on. I'm going to get Steve's, uh, analysis of, uh, a couple things, uh, regarding Alabama football, Alabama basketball, and we will be right back. This is Big Noon Sports brought to you by Haley Sansing and Union Home Mortgage. I'm Lars Anderson. We'll be right back.
This is the Big Noon Sports Network. You've probably seen their clothing around town on game days. Check out Christopher Mobley on the Strip. Luxury game day apparel redefined. It's the only place in town where you can find Todd Hoops apparel. Clothing designed for the modern day entrepreneur, golf enthusiast, and athleisure fanatic. They've got Peter Millar, Yori, Grayson, and Mizzenamane. And if you haven't tried the Mizzenamane dress shirts, you've got to. You can find them at 1410 University Boulevard on the Strip. Also, they've got a great e-commerce site at ChristopherMobley.shop. So check out Christopher Mobley, luxury game day apparel redefined. Securing the best mortgage possible requires a lender who has knowledge, is trustworthy, and treats customers like family. And no one is better at all of this than the mortgage miracle worker, Haley Sansing. Based right here in Tuscaloosa, Haley Sansing has spent decades working in the mortgage industry. With Haley, it's personal, holding your hand from contract to close. With Haley, it's about one thing, you. Call Haley on her cell, yes, her cell, 205-792-1813. That's 205-792-1813. Let Haley help you. NLMS number 230376. I mean, they get all five of their offensive linemen back, nine starters on offense. And you remember Quinn Ewers, he started the game on fire against Alabama last season. I mean, it looked like it could have really gotten away from Alabama early. But then Ewers left uh, with an uh, injury after a really hard hit from Dallas Turner in the first quarter. Didn't return, and that really changed uh, the uh the the outcome or the the nature of the game and yes they lost they lost Bijan Robinson at running back but they have former Alabama running back Keelian Robinson also Sarkeesian signed the top running back in the class of 2023 and CJ Baxter so this is a loaded Texas team and again you put Sark in charge of that uh and uh, we'll um, we'll see what happens. I think we may have just lost Steve there uh, unintentionally. We'll try to get him back. We will be right back for our final segment on Big Dune Sports, brought to you by Haley Sansing. We'll be right back. Covering SEC sports like Kudzu on the roadside. This is Big Noon Sports. The story of the nurse and the foot pain that nearly brought him down. I feel like I'm giving people their lives back. Robert lived to take care of his patients, but he couldn't do it unless he took care of his foot pain. I have plantar fasciitis. It'll almost put you on your knees. That's how much it hurts. His own recovery started when he got fitted for arch supports at the Goodfeet store. Now that I'm pain-free, I can make these people feel better. Can't beat that. Stop by or schedule your free fitting at goodfeet.com. Hi. Securing the best mortgage possible requires a lender who has knowledge, is trustworthy, and treats customers like family. And no one is better at all of this than the mortgage miracle worker, Haley Sansing. Based right here in Tuscaloosa, Haley Sansing has spent decades working in the mortgage industry. With Haley, it's personal, holding your hand from contract to close. With Haley, it's about one thing, you. 
Call Haley on her cell. Yes, her cell. 205-792-1813. That's 205-792-1813. Let Haley help you. NLMS number 230376. Tide 100.9. Tuscaloosa weather. A mix of sun and clouds this afternoon. Scattered showers and storms around through the evening hours. The high today, 92. Tonight's low, 73. For tomorrow, morning sunshine. Scattered showers and storms forming again by afternoon. The high, 91. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 90 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Welcome back into the final segment of Big Noon Sports. I'm Lars Anderson. Matt Coulter has the day off. Steve Irvine, longtime sports writer, has been kind enough to join us here in the second hour. Steve, I want to switch topics here. Uh, We have talked in the past a little bit about Thompson quarterback Trent Seaborn. Uh, and I, I just want to dig a little bit deeper into Trent, uh, as, uh, with the, with the final, uh, few minutes that we have here. And he's already been, uh, sort of anointed as the number one quarterback in the nation in the class of 2027. And, uh, he seems incredibly mature. Um, you know, his, uh, and he's got a great family support network. Uh, he, uh, I believe his dad handles all of his social media. So he's not on there reading, you know, things that really could, could, uh, you know, uh, just everybody's negative on social media. I mean, heck, I yeah. even try to, I even try to stay away from that. I used to have a reminder sent to me every day. Don't read the comments. Don't read the comments. <laughs> so, so I wouldn't. Um, but, but you know, he, uh, as we know, he's already got offers from Alabama, from Auburn, uh, Nebraska, just teams, uh, you know, he'll have, he can go wherever he wants. Basically, right. as long as long as he keeps developing, what just give us what you know about Trent Seaborn and and what makes him so special in your estimation? Well, I, I think the maturity is is the first thing that that you know that you notice with him, and you know I, I think that you know I've thought about this too. I, I think that. The way that they've, you know, they, they've definitely groomed him to be, to, to be to this point. There's no doubt about that with the, with the quarterback coaches and a different type of thing. But it's such a, 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 a more healthy way than, than like Todd Marinovich. You know, it, it, to me, it's a similar situation as far as trying to, trying to give this kid as much as you can to, uh, to, 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 uh, get him to a point where he can grow into, to be this, you know, certainly college quarterback and, and above, but you know, with the, the with the Tom Marinovich thing was just so it was just kind of bizarre the way that that happened. That you know, the, 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 Trent Seaborn has been you know his, his parents have done an amazing job of keeping him grounded. I mean, he, you know, he's kidding. He's in the middle school, but he was in the middle school band. You know, he's just a kid. You know, I mean, he, you know, until you see him on the football field, and and then uh, you know, then he's he's a little more than just a kid, but. But I just think that the way that they, they raise him, you know, the raising, you know, the, the tongue of a low has had a big deal to do with it, uh, you know, and, and just other, 
other people that handle it in a healthy way, you know, and, and, and I don't know that, um, I don't know, it, it's hard to kind of um, describe it, you know, uh, but but I, I just think that they've they really, you know, built this kid into, into being, you know, a, a, a great football player, but much more than that. You know, we're, we're like with the Todd Marinovich, I don't know how many how people around here, how much they really know about the whole Todd Marinovich thing, but it was just... It was just a whole, it was an unhealthy way of, of doing it, and really, his dad basically turned him into almost like a you know like a robo quarterback. You know, I mean that was yeah. what his life was going to be. You know, Trent Seaborn. You know, you talk to him and you see him, and, and you see he he's got other things going in life. I mean, football is not his life. You know, and and I think that's that's key. You know, because too often these these some of these cases of these 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 parents that have, have tried to. You know, push away this this whole baby Gronk thing. You know, I mean that that you know, Trent Seaborn is everything that's right about about doing this, and baby Gronk is everything that's wrong about what you, how you can try to you know raise your kid to be a, you know an athlete. And so I think that's a lot of it. I, and also, I do think that Mark Freeman had, has had a big role in this. You know, I, Mark Freeman is, is one of the. You know, I was around him for a couple of years when uh, when I first got laid off, and we're not even it was it was after that, but but um, just kind of writing stuff for Thompson, and it, it sort of became a staff writer for him, doing some stuff. And Mark Freeman is as solid a human being as I've ever met in high school football. I mean, just easily. I mean, he's he is he he is the kind of guy that he pushes his players. He he he, he you know he he. Um, he makes them be the best they can be, but he also wants them to be people, you know, not just football players. And, and I think, uh, you know, I think he's had a big, big part of, of who Trent Seaborn is. And, and so, you know, it's going to be fun to watch him progress, you know, through, through, I mean, right now, I mean, he's sensational right now, but I can't imagine when he's going to be three years from now, uh, two years from now, a year from now, you know, I mean, because he grows every day. So, it's going to be fun to watch. It's not going to be fun to play against, but it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, yeah, another uh, individual who's going to be fun to watch, at least from my perspective, is uh, Russ Probst, uh, <laughs> the former Hoover coach uh, who has uh, been officially approved as Pell City's football coach. Uh, I once did a... Gosh, there's about a 12-page feature in Sports Illustrated on Hoover, but I specifically focused on Rush, and I spent many wow. days with him. But what do you think of, of, of the Rush probe story and where it goes from here? And I, I know we're running low on time. we only got about two minutes left. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, obviously he's going to have success there. I mean, there's no doubt he has success everywhere. I, I've always... I, I've always liked Rush. I mean, Rush is flawed, yeah, me too. And, and, and but he'll tell you he's flawed. And and, and uh, you know, I, I think that the one thing that I think you sort of lose sight of Rush because of of who Rush is 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 he cares about his kids now. He cares about the players, and and, and he always has. You know, and now is he's hard on them, but he he does care about that about the kids. And I I've always respected that. And I think people lose sight of that and. But uh, he's gonna win, you know, and he's gonna um, he's gonna spend some money. They're already spending money, you know, fixing up, uh, uh, you know, their their facilities and just different things. And, and honestly, 
whoever comes in after him is is going to have a better situation than they would have if they came in now. You know, because he's going to make it better. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But it, it, and, but it's going to be fun along the way. There, it's, there's not going to be. There's going to be plenty to talk about. Let's put it that way. <laughs> He always keeps things interesting, and and so do you, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us this hour, and uh, we will be in touch with you soon. Great, great material, uh, great discussion that we had about all things uh, sports, journalism, life, uh, and uh, it's been a, been very enjoyable. Steve, have a have a great weekend. If I don't talk to you before then. And uh, everyone, we will be back in 22 hours. Be safe. Let my secret.